everybody loving and serving the church comes in and they clean everything up for me and they put the chairs back so we had to bring them back up and then my wife walks in and she's like what are you doing with two chairs you ain't bringing me up on stage now are you <laughs> no ma'am I'm not I promise I'd give you at least a five minute warning before I did something like that no no I'm uh I don't know, I was praying through this last night, and the Lord just kept putting all these things in my head, and so I just said, you know what, let's just let a little chaos in. Let's just let a little chaos. Church has been stagnant for a little while, let's just let chaos in. I'm not talking about our church, I don't think I could ever be described by the word stagnant. I'm just saying that church, sometimes you get into these ruts, and let's just change it up, shall we? Amen, hallelujah, thank you Jesus, we're going to whether you like it or not. Hey, hallelujah, because I'm going to whether I like it or not. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Let's just read. Let's read and let's just see where we end up. John chapter 20, verse 1. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Resurrection life. If you want to know what we're preaching on this morning, we're preaching on resurrection life. And that's an appropriate. I didn't plan it this way. This is the way the Holy Spirit laid out the sermon, the series, to come to where resurrection life was for today. And then what happened with Brian this past week, it's like apparently God wants us to see some resurrection life because he's bringing people up off their deathbed. So this could not be a more timely word. So if nothing else, just understand, hey, even if the preacher bombs, God's creating a whole sermon by something happening in real life to communicate to you resurrection life is a real thing. Amen? Let's read. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark under the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they both ran together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher. <laughs> John's always ragging on Peter, giving him a hard time. I wouldn't have laughed, but face started chuckling, and I'm like, we had this conversation. Like, John, he just, they had a little competition going. He had it in for Peter. And he's stooping down, this is John, and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet he went not in. Then come a Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and see that the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and see two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lain. Then they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had said thus, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus saith unto her, Mary... And she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but I go to, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. 
Amen. I'm just going to set that right there and hope I don't trip over it. So listen, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. We're talking about the morning. So you guys know the debate, Jews, Sabbath is Saturday. Christians say, no, Sabbath is Sunday. Well, the truth is the Sabbath is Saturday. But when Jesus got up from the dead on the first day, Christians started worshiping in honor of the resurrection. So we worshiped and we changed the Lord's Day from the Sabbath or Saturday to Sunday, which is the first day of the week. So she's coming on Sunday morning, and it's not yet light out. The sun hasn't risen, and she comes to the tomb. And listen, when it's talking about it was yet dark, it's talking about the natural. The sun hadn't been risen. But there's a spiritual implication here, too. It's yet dark in her mind and in her heart, spiritually speaking, because she doesn't know the fullness of the Scripture. It says a few verses down that they did not understand the scripture that he would rise from the dead. They didn't understand what that meant. So there's a darkness on her. She doesn't come to the tomb excited because she's like, Jesus has got up. She comes because a friend and someone that she loved was killed and she is going to take care of the body because she didn't have time to before the Passover. And it was against Jewish law for her to do that on the Passover. So she's coming to honor a dead man. She's not coming to see a resurrected Savior because she doesn't know the Savior's risen. She doesn't understand that scripture. So there's a spiritual darkness. And she comes and she the first thing she sees is she sees the stone taken out of the way. Now one thing cool, this is, this is just preliminary. This isn't getting to the heart of the message. One thing that's cool about this is if you guys know anything about Christian symbolism or biblical symbolism, you know that the stone is a representation of the law. You know that the stone... Uh, Moses took the two tablets and God wrote the Ten Commandments on them. Then he gave them 613 other laws in addition to that. But the Ten Commandments were put on the stones. There was four put on one stone representing your horizontal relationship one to another. And six put on the other representing God's... um, Wait, I got that backwards. Four representing your relationship to God. And six on the other representing your relationship and your dealings one to another. But the stone is a representation of the law. So here you have this place where resurrection life has just happened and just occurred. And the whole time the law or the stone has been in between us and the power of resurre- or the place of resurrection power. But now it's been moved. And she's seeing these things in the natural, freaks out and goes and gets Peter and John. But the thing is, I want you to see this in the spiritual. That there's a place of resurrection power and up until this point the law has been in our way. Up until the point of Jesus getting up from the dead, the law has been in the way. That's why the law came. The law was given as a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ until the faith should be revealed afterwards. But now that faith has been revealed, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The law was given to show us our need for a Savior. The law was given to magnify sin. I didn't know what sin was until the law came. And then when the law came, sin revived and now I'm dead. And who shall save me from this body of sin and death? I thank my God for Christ Jesus the Lord. So that's the point. The whole point is the law was keeping us from the place of resurrection life. But Jesus came and fulfilled the law, took the curse away, and in so doing he moved the stone away. So now there's access to resurrection life. But Mary doesn't see it that way. She only sees it in the natural. So she runs and she gets Peter and John. She takes off sprint and goes after Peter and John. Like, I got to get some help. I got to get some, some men folk because something has happened. I don't know what's going on. I'm scared. Let's go get some Peter and John. Because Peter's the hothead. He cuts people's ear off. He's going to take care of this situation, you know. <laughs> and so he goes and he gets, she goes and she gets Peter and John. And they come running to the tomb. And as I said before, I love John. He's always ragging on Peter. 
He's always giving Peter a hard time, and he's like, I did outrun him. Like, he doesn't say John, because he's right. He said, the disciple whom Jesus loved, so, and Peter. Like, Peter didn't love that disciple as much as he did. <laughs> as much as he, Peter didn't love, or Jesus didn't love Peter as much as he did this disciple. This is the disciple that Jesus loved, definite article. This is the one. <laughs> and this one, not only was he loved more by Jesus, not only was Jesus his favorite, but he was also a little bit faster. <laughs> you know, and it's funny. And I, always, I, we, I chuckle every time I read this passage. And er, throughout the go, uh, gospel according to John, you can see little tidbits where John is just sliding one on Peter. But you know what's so sad about this? Is, man, I seen last night when I was talking to the Lord about this, I seen the church. I seen the church in America today. And it actually kind of broke my heart. Because all I see here is competition. All I see here is one person saying, we're favored a little bit more. One person saying, we got there first. One person saying, we're bigger, we're better. <laughs> we have more money in the bank. We have a nicer building. We have a bigger property. We, we broke the threshold for 100 people or 500 people or 1,000 people first. Or our preacher looks better than your preacher because people talk like that. <laughs> our worship team is better than your worship team. They cut an album, yours hasn't. Or we, yours cut your first album, we've already cut three. You're on TV, you're not. And I just see this competition. And actually it's so prevalent that I forget who it was. Linda, I think you mentioned about Perry mentioning this very same thing this past Tuesday night, talking about churches not even being willing to work together because they're afraid if my youth group and your group, youth group hang out, then this boy might get a crush on that girl and might join this youth group instead and leave our church. And it's like, it isn't your church anyway. Like, I wish that we could get this. It's not our church. It's not my church. Faith Memorial doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. There's only one church, whether you're here or you're somewhere else, whether you're in Cleveland or you're in California, it does, there's one church. And honestly, if you're in California and you're worshiping Jesus, praise God, you're probably stronger than I am. <laughs> California's got all kinds of issues. Praise God for the faithful. You know, like, people talk about the way that people dress when they go to church in California. I'm like, I'm just glad they're going to church in California. Have you seen what they got going on out there? But like it, there's so much competition like we we paid our dues david wilkerson is one of my favorite preachers of all time i used to listen to him all the time and i say used to because i don't really listen to anyone preach anymore just god just won't let me do that i don't know why but anyway he was talking about when the origin of the seeker friendly movement and when they came out and they would like do the demographics and they'd get these mega churches real quick and he was preaching it from the heart of the pastors who were being churches that were being closed because of this and he said and he he said one thing and it always has resonated funny with me he said the pastor said but i've been here 15 20 years i've paid my dues why isn't my church growing and what you have happen is you have this competition and this church explodes and you're standing here and you're like well i've 
I'm more faithful than they. I study more than they. I can quote more scripture. I could preach better than they can. Or we've done it right, and I know the problems that that minister has in their life. And, you know, I, he doesn't even hold the gospel. He preaches out of the Bible once a month. Like, I don't understand why they're growing and they're getting the blessing and the favor of God, and we're still back here struggling. And it gets frustrating because the church does this. We just all the time comparing and contrasting churches. And, and we, in the, along the way, we miss something. We miss something. Faith says all the time, comparison is a thief of joy. And it is. But, hey, we got here first. We broke that 100 people threshold first. We broke that. We got 500,000 in the bank now. We broke that threshold first. It's like, you're missing it. You're, you're missing it. But see, we turn church into a competition, and we count how many people we got. Preachers get together, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I don't care who you are, if you're in ministry for any length of time and you go to a gathering, just go to a gathering where there's a bunch of preachers or a bunch of pastors and walk by two pastors who initiate a conversation. The first thing out of their mouth, if it's not the first, it's the second or the third, and it's only because they're being respectful and putting it off as long as they possibly can maintain it. But one of the first things is, how's your church doing? And the answer is always numerical. Oh, we're doing good. We're, we're in the black. We're not in the red no more. We're doing good. We have this many people coming. We received this many new members. We've seen this many people make a profession of faith. We baptized this many people. It's always numbers. It's always a comparison. And you know what? Every time one of those pastors walks away discouraged. Every time. They may not say it, and it may not hit them until the next day, but one of those pastors always walks away discouraged. And the worst time for it is it's Christmas Eve and Easter. Following Christmas Eve and Easter, because those are the two biggest services of the year. So always what you have happen is a pastor goes in anxious and eager, and then they come out, excited or disappointed and if they are excited most of the time the very next Sunday they're disappointed because they the they have 200 people because it's Easter and then they have 50 because it's not Easter anymore and so you have you have the creasters the people that only come to church on Christmas and Easter the creasters but then pastors get together after those things and they have those conversations how'd you do on Easter and when they say how was your Easter service they're always asking how many people did you have it's always a competition it's always a competition and here's what you have happen that becomes so unfortunate. It's John makes it there. He makes it there first. But you know what the first thing? He can't see in. He makes it first, but he can't see nothing. What's he have to do? He has to stoop down to see in. So he outruns. He outruns Peter, makes it to the tomb, can't see nothing. In that position, in that posture, that comparative mindset, can't see nothing. He has to lower himself to be able to see in. He has to lower himself. It's the equivalent of humbling himself. He has to lower his posture before he can see anything. Before he can see anything with resurrection life, he has to humble himself and lower his posture. But then he sees in, and you know what he sees? So you guys are probably wondering about these chairs. Demonstration time, demonstration time. We're going to get all kinds of fancy and crazy. He sees... Linen cloth. Like, I realize this is like one of those, like, modesty things. Is that what it's called? Modesty? 
Anyway, whatever it's called, whatever. What's the modesty when somebody goes to the altar, you cover up so we don't have plumbers crack in the front of the church, you know? (laughs) That's what they're for? Lie and tell me that's not what this is for. Lie and tell me. You know good and well that's what it's for. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) you're welcome for that. You know who I'm talking to. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, hallelujah. Hallelujah. He sees a linen cloth laying, right? It's not folded. It's nothing. It's just laying there on the slab where Jesus had laid. So he stoops down and he can see the linen cloth. Standing up, he can't see it. Stooping down, he can see the linen cloth. He sees it. And you know what this is? This linen cloth is used to cover the body. It's got blood on it. It's used to cover the body. So he sees in, into resurrection life, and the only thing that he can see, because he's still not out of that comparative mindset, the only thing that he can see is that the body still has work to do. It's all he can see. It's all he can see. Because he's not in the resurrection life. He's on the outside looking in. So all he can see is the responsibility of the body. It's all he can see. But then, notice, he stooped down and he stopped. He's stationary. But notice, you got Peter coming, and Peter's running. And guess what John doesn't do? See, there's more spoken from the silence of Scripture sometimes than what's actually written. Sometimes, Scripture speaks from what it doesn't say. And the Spirit speaks through the absence of words. And Peter's running, and guess what John doesn't do? John doesn't get in his way. John doesn't get in his way. See, what we have happen a lot of times is we have churches that break these thresholds faster. And they get this certain amount of people faster. And they have these nice buildings and these bank accounts. And they get there sooner. And they feel like because they have paid their dues, that they should be the first one to go into the new place. That awakening shouldn't happen unless it's them. That revival shouldn't come unless they're the ones that initiate it. And they get so caught up in where they're at that when they see somebody come running, they get in the way. And they say, hang on a second, Peter. Hang on, you don't get to go in because I've been here longer. I have to go in first. You can't go in. So they stop him from running. See, John is one of those people, he had been running. And he had been running well. But he stopped. He stopped. And then you have somebody else that's, that's coming, that's a little late to the party, that's coming and he's running and he has no intention of stopping. And guess what? <laughs> guess what? If, if John was to get in his way, guess what would happen? Neither one of them would make it in. They'd both fall flat on their face. Have you ever crouched down in front of somebody and then, them been walking and not see you? Or you crouch down behind somebody and they go to turn around and you're in their way and they just fall flat on their face and you both end up on the ground and neither one of you are comfortable, neither one of you have what you want, neither one of you are in the place you want to be, but you're flat down on the ground? If John would have moved over and gotten Peter's way, they both would have been face first in the dirt and neither one of them would have been in the place of resurrection life. And in the church in America, that's what we have going constantly is we have people who are running, and because of uh, the circumstance, because of the situation, because of the work of other people, and them drinking from wells they didn't dig, or dwelling in houses they didn't build, because of people laying a foundation in the Spirit, that they get there faster. They get there faster. Or it's just because they're not doing it right, and they have all these natural things. Listen, anybody will come they listen to somebody tell them how good they are, and how pretty they are all day long. 
listen, everybody likes to be made feel good. So you say the right things and you don't ever talk about anything bad. And you say, oh, you're great, you're favored, you're blessed, you're loved. You know, oh, that's sin. You're okay. That's a, no big deal. Don't worry about that. You know, Jesus loves you just the way you are. Don't change. You're awesome. You're, you're God incarnate, basically. Like, as, as long as people just tell them and you coddle them, you can grow a church that way. <laughs> Start talking about sin. <laughs> anyway, so they get there faster for whatever reason. But because they're there first, they don't like it when someone else looks like they're going to go further. And I'm not talking numerically now. I'm talking about when someone is coming along in the running in the spirit and they look like they're going to go further spiritually. This person's like, why are they getting to go further spiritually? I've got the bigger church. My church has the bigger bank account. I've been in ministry for 20 years. They've only been in that ministry for five. Why are they going to go past where I'm at spiritually? I can't let that happen. So then they'll, they'll get in the way and they'll say, listen, listen, I, I appreciate your, your running in the spirit and you're doing good. But look, I need to tell you the way you dress probably, probably isn't good. Listen, I know you're, you're coming to preach, but would you, would you take the hat off for me? I had that happen to me when I was preaching one time. I showed up to preach an evangelistic service, and that was one of the things I, I was asked by the pastor. Can you, can you, the hat looks great, but can you take it off for me? It's like, can you get that snap back out of the way? This is your church. Absolutely. I will. I won't like it. I won't agree with it, but yeah, I'll take it off. Or, hey, I know God's called you to preach. Let me buy you some suits. It's a blessing, but you need a suit to preach. Hey, you, you're, you're doing good, but you really need some seminary. I know that God has called you, but we, you really need some seminary. We need to put some education on that. It's like, well, do I know the word or do I need to know what man says about the word? And they, they get in the way. And what they're doing is they're trying, kind of like Saul with David, like, wear my armor. Do it like I do it. Because you can't go further than me the way that you are. You can't go further than me the way that you are. You have to do it my way. And what ends up happening is nobody goes in. Nobody goes in. And then we're both standing outside. We're all standing outside the resurrection life. And yeah, we may be stooped down and trying to humble ourselves. And we may be able to see, oh, the body's still got work to do. So let's, let's do some stuff. Let's, you know, have some outreaches. Let's preach the word. Let's try our best. Let's, you know, let's have some prayer services. Let's visit people. Let's feed people. Let's do all these things. The body's still got work to do. But we never get to go into the place of the fullness of resurrection life because we're in each other's way and we're too worried about who gets to go in first. John doesn't do that. Man, that's a word in of itself. John doesn't do that. Peter runs right past him. See, Peter doesn't have to stop running. There is nothing in Scripture, God never says, that you have to be in ministry 10 years before you get to see resurrection life. God never says you have to have this amount or this size of a church to be a center of awakening. Like, we, we've got these, these things in our mind that would say we've got to meet this criteria. God doesn't say you have to read five chapters of Scripture a day to be diligent in the Word. He doesn't say that. He says dwell in it. Put it on your doorpost. 
quote it to yourself and you're coming in and you're going out and you're rising up and you're laying down. So live in the word, but that could be one verse. He doesn't say five chapters. He doesn't say you got to read the Bible in a year to be faithful to the word. Everybody's like, oh, well, <laughs> but we do. We create all these little criteria and say, well, that preacher, <laughs> he didn't put in 40 office hours this week. Listen, if you expect me to put in 40 office hours, you better just <laughs> find somebody else because I ain't doing it. Because <laughs> I ain't doing it. Offices make me go stir crazy, and I feel like I'm like, in, I feel like I need a straight jacket, and I'm like looking around like, I don't know. You can, I don't think you can be a pastor and lead a ministry from behind a desk. I'm there when I have to be, and not there every chance I get. So <laughs> make an appointment in advance if you want to talk to me, because I may or may not be in the office. Anyway, that's a side note. <laughs> But anyway, where am I at? <laughs> we make all these criteria and all these restrictions and say we have to fulfill this to be able to move into resurrection life. And the truth of the matter is, is that sometimes those have absolutely nothing to do with true biblical holiness. Sometimes they have nothing to do with holiness. Sometimes they have everything to do with appearance. Sometimes they have everything to do with what we think people should look like and act like. And so we put all these stipulations on ourselves and other people and nobody gets to move into revival or into the fullness of resurrection life because we have got in the way. You know, the only thing you've got to do is love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and everything else will flow out of that. And you'll start doing things because you want to, not because you legalistically have to. So Peter's running, and he hasn't been there as long as John has, but he's running, and he doesn't stop. He doesn't have to wait five years or wait on Mary to catch up or anything else. He just gets to go straight in. And when he goes straight in, it's beautiful. It's beautiful because you know what? He goes straight in, and he does. I'm glad this is already folded because I suck at folding. That's my wife. Uh, anyway, <laughs> he goes straight in, and yes, he does see the linen clothes lying on the slab. There's still work for the body to do. But he sees one thing in addition that John didn't get to see from the outside. And he sees the one, the cloth that was for the face, for the head. I'm not talking about the Shroud of Turin. Because I think that's a hoax anyway. But anyway, <laughs> I'm talking about the fact that he has the folded cloth. The one for the face of Jesus. The one that went about the head. See, Jesus is the head of the body. The one that went about the head. Guess what? It's folded up nice and neat. And it's put over in its place. It's done. And you know what that's communicating? The work that the head, that Christ has to do is finished. It's done. His responsibility is done. He's finished. His work is complete. The body still has work to do, but guess what? It gets to work out of the finished product of Jesus Christ. Not for it, it gets to work from it. And we get that so mixed up and create all these works-based ideologies of we've got work to do, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. And what we end up doing is we get so fixated on our responsibility that we forget that His work's already done. His work is done. We're working from that, not for that. That's that whole scripture, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. God's already done it. You're working out of it. You're not working it out like, hey, figure out your own salvation. That's not what that means. It means you've got the salvation that God has delivered once and for all. Now you get to work from that and work out of that. The work of Jesus Christ is finished. It's done. Already bought and paid for. Now we get to operate from that finished work and resurrected life. And then we get to fulfill our responsibility. But you know what? Here's the best thing about all this. 
Peter goes in, but guess who gets to go into John? See, John, if he'd have been afraid of Peter going in first, and he'd have been worried about who got to go into resurrection power and resurrection life first, neither one of them would have made it in. But when he got to a place where he said, I don't care who gets to go in first, I just want someone to go in, and he moves out of the way, and Peter moves into the place of resurrection life, guess what? John now gets out of his rut, and he gets to go in too. And I really think that if the church would get out of this competitive mindset, and we'd stop worrying about how big my church is, and how big your church is, and yours is about to shut down, and yours is about to, to bust, and need to get into a building project and we'd get out of that and we'd say there's one church there's one church and we just surrender and let God orchestrate this thing then we'd all get to enter in if awakening the way people have prophesied it if awakening comes like that to Cleveland if it does I believe that it will but if it does I don't care that there's 386 churches at Cleveland They'll all be full. Here's your experiment. Look up the population of Cleveland and then divide that by 386. And you're left with several thousand. Or several hundred, I'm sorry. Several hundred for each church. If you did that, I think it was, what, 600? I did it not too long ago. But it was some odd, like six or 700 people for every church. Imagine if every church in Cleveland had six or 700 people trying to get in on a Sunday morning. And everybody's like, oh, it's got to be me first. It's got to be me first because i got to get my slice of the pie. Well, what ends up happening is you're trying to get your slice of the pie. It's like the two kids, you know, where they're, they're like fighting over the plate with the pie on it and they're pulling back and forth and what happens? The pie ends up in the floor and nobody gets it. And that's what's happening in church is people are too worried about who gets to go in first that nobody goes in. And we're still standing on the outside face down in the dirt looking like fools arguing about who gets to go in first. And nobody goes in. But they, Peter goes in first, John gets to go into, and they all get to go into the place of resurrection life. And then it says that they believed. Because not only now, it didn't say John saw the towel on the slab and he believed. No, it doesn't say that until after they both go in and they see the towel that's for the face, for the head, folded up and put in its place. Then they believed. Then they believed. Then that spiritual darkness began to be removed. And it says they went home. They were good now. I believe I can go home. I can go to my place, to where God has set up a place for me to dwell and to occupy. I can go there and do my thing. But then you got Mary. And Mary is still there outside the tomb. She's still not in that place of resurrection life. She's outside. But you know what I love about Mary? She sees them go in. She sees them come out. She probably may have even have a conversation with them. I don't know. I think that if I went and told somebody, hey, the body of our Lord Jesus is gone, and they run in and check it out, and then I get there, and they come out of the tomb, and they have to walk past me, I think that there would be some conversation there, and they would explain to her what's going on. Yes, I'm reading into the text a little bit, but if you go get somebody and ask them to check something out for you, and then they go check it out, are you just going to say, hey, bye, thanks? Like, no, you're going to be like, what did you see? Like, what's going on in there? Like, that's just common sense. So they probably told her what they had found out, what they now know to be true, and what they believe. And guess where Mary's at? Still outside. Still outside the tomb. But she does something. 
spectacular. She's still not there. She's still operating in spiritual darkness, and the passage will tell us that as, as it progresses. But guess what she does? She lingers just a little bit longer, and she starts weeping. She starts crying. I remember a story, I can't think of uh, the two ladies' names, Kate and Mary, maybe? Not Mary Kate, but Kate and Mary, something like that. But anyway, in London, there's the church, one of the Salvation Army churches, um, where, what is it called? They call it Halls? I don't remember. But anyway, William Booth was an amazing preacher. Salvation Army now isn't what it was then. But he was, he was an incredible preacher. And he established this hall, and he put these two ladies, they were in charge of this area, particular area of London. And they try everything to do to make a, a work here to accomplish something they try programs they try activities they try outreaches they try everything possible and after two years nothing has happened like maybe one or two people like they're just barely making it by and they reach out to William Booth they send him a telegram and they say we have tried everything possible can we please be reassigned We've been here two years. Can we be ple please be reassigned? And he answers them back and sends a telegram, and it's two words. Try tears. Try tears. So they do. And they start weeping and crying over the people and over the city. And guess what happens? Revival breaks out. Revival breaks out. Because they finally allowed the need and the burden to break their heart. And I believe that this is a prerequisite. I'm not putting a stipulation on it. I'm just saying that there is a prerequisite for us to truly get into revival. And it's for us actually having a heart of prayer. Because us just throwing words around and not letting our hearts be broken over the needs of people that we're praying for, over the needs of Cleveland, Tennessee. Like, if we want to see revival, we're going to have to let the need break our hearts. Because so often, let's be honest, we look at revival and we think about the cool things about revival. How many of you guys, when you think about revival, you think about, oh, church exploding, all kinds of people, like God healing people, miracles, cool stuff, smoke, and light. Like, we think about the cool stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that, because I think about that. I'm like, man, it would be awesome to see people busting out windows and then leaving money to pay for it to be replaced, because, you know, you've got to do that. But people, like, cramming in, because they've got to hear the word. They've got to be a part of what God's doing. Ambulances bringing people and dropping them off, because God is healing everybody that comes to the door. Like, those are cool things. But we're thinking about the result. And oftentimes, I wish that we could think, and myself included, more about the need. More about the need. Because I don't know about you guys, but I hate the fact that I can go through some of the places that I grew up in. And like places like downtown Chattanooga, or even like certain areas of Cleveland, or even places in Ray County, and I can see how dilapidated and tore down and run down these areas that used to be pretty, that used to be well-kept. I see how poorly they're taken care of. And I, I see how people in places have been overcome by poverty and oppression and drugs. And, and I, I, I look at it and I'm like, man, I, I want to see God change the moral climate of a community. I want to see God come in and people rejoice in holiness and true righteousness. I want to see you, you be able to go to Hamilton Place Mall at late at night or in that area and not be wondered if somebody's going to try to rob you. Like, I, I want that for Cleveland. I want you to be able to go and not be concerned no matter what hour it is as to whether or not 
something unfortunate is going to happen. I hate the fact that sin has become so prevalent in our society. I hate the fact that the Catholic Pope just invited transgenderism into the Roman Catholic Church. Like, that's a travesty. That's an outright blasphemy against the Word of God. I hate that. I long to see sin put away and removed. I long to see that. So, we want to see something. We need to let the need break our hearts. And I'm not talking about letting your Christianity become miserable. The beautiful thing about Christianity is it's a completion of paradoxes. That you can literally have your heart broken for and burdened for a need and still be walking in the fullness of the joy of the Lord. And you can weep for somebody in prayer, but you can smile walking away knowing that God is sovereign and He sits on the throne and all of this is under control. That's the beautiful paradox of Christianity. So she's standing and she's weeping. And guess what? She learned a lesson from John. She learned she's never going to see anything standing. So she stoops down. And she can see in. But she doesn't see this. She doesn't see, see this. She sees something else. Ted, will you come here? You come here, Mike. Come here. I told you, I'm getting everybody involved today. Everybody. Everybody. Will you stand right here and face this way? You stand right here and face this way. You see them? Don't they look pretty? They look pretty. Anyway, will you guys do me a favor? Will you put your hands up like this? Will you guys put that picture up? The picture? Hold your hands up as long as you can. Put the picture up. Put the picture up. We got it. Oh, look at that. You know what that is? That's the Ark of the Covenant. That's the thing that the presence of the Lord hovered above. That's the thing that symbolized resurrection life. You guys can go sit down, thank you. But that's the thing that symbolized the fullness of the presence of God. The thing that had Aaron's rod that budded, that had the tables of the covenant, and that had the jar full of manna, or the pot that had manna. That's the thing that the high priest would go into one time a year with the blood of the atonement day sacrifice and come in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, which is an area that sits between those two angels or cherubim. And he would sprinkle that, and then that would be the covering for the sins of the people for the full year. They didn't do away with sin because it's not possible, as the author of Hebrews tells us, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sin. But, guess what? Christ did not enter into the holy place made with hands with the bloods of bulls of goats or the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean to the sanctifying and purifying of the flesh. No, he entered in once into the heavenly place with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption for us. That's what she saw. She looked in and she saw the fullness of the glory of God. She saw a beautiful prophetic image of the Ark of the Covenant. And she still doesn't get it. She still doesn't get it. Like, sometimes we're slow learners, church. Sometimes we're Mary Magdalene right here. And we see the stone moved out of the way, we're still in darkness. <laughs> we, we have some people testify of the finished work of Jesus, and we're still in darkness. We lower ourselves, humble ourselves, we look in, and we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant, and that the work is finished, and our sins are paid for, and we're still in darkness. But then guess what she does? She gets into a conversation with the angels, and then she hears somebody behind her. And she turns around. You can take that. Down. She turns around, and she sees Jesus. And it says suppose her, supposing him to be the gardener. We'll deal with that in a second. She says, where have you taken him? And every time I read this, I always think about Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon 
preached a message, and he said, he said, every time I go and I hear someone preach, when they don't talk about Jesus, I feel like Mary on Resurrection Sunday. Where have you taken my Lord? Where have you laid him? Where? Because the truth of the matter is, is that no sermon has any salt or any goodness whatsoever if Jesus isn't the central figure of the sermon. I don't care how much practicality you get. I don't care how good they sound. I don't care how eloquent they are. It doesn't make one iota of difference. If it isn't centered upon the person and the work of Jesus, it's garbage and unfit to be in a church. And we've been celebrating these practical, pragmatic messages for too long. No. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me where He is. Tell me that He's seated on the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for me. Tell me that His blood is on the heavenly mercy seat and that my sins are paid for. Tell me that He died on the cross in my place. Tell me that He took away sin and nailed it to the tree. He took away all the opposition from me. Tell me that Jesus rose from the dead so that I am no longer bound by the chains and the hold that death had on us. Tell me about Jesus. Don't tell me about three ways to have a conversation with somebody. Don't tell me about four traits that made somebody a good figure or a brave leader. Don't tell me about that nonsense. I can read any self-help book out there and find that out. I come to church because I want you to tell me about Jesus. That's what I want. Anyway, she supposes him to be the gardener. <laughs> Here's a hidden revelation for you. Jesus is the gardener. He's the gardener of Eden. He's the one that keeps the tree of life. And you know, the tree of life is the same thing as that resurrection power. See, Adam and Eve in the garden, they, have, they could eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which that meant that they had the ability to eat of the tree of life. But when they ate of this, and see, let me tell you something. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. People always say the knowledge of good and evil. Look, knowledge in of itself is not good or bad. That's not what this is about. It's not a tree that had all these black magic conversations. Like, no, God didn't create that. What the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, is we have the ability to take knowledge and use that for good or for evil. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a representation of the fact that Adam and Eve wanted to be able to make the choice and determine in of themselves what was good and what was evil. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's why it is so bad. Is because it is us saying, God, your determination and your sovereignty isn't good enough for me. I want to be able to determine this myself. That's what they couldn't eat of, but they had resurrection life all day long. But they chose to eat of this, and they were kicked out of the garden. And then God took, and he put a cherubim and a flaming sword that kept every which way and kept the way to the tree of life. And guess what? The Word of God is a flaming sword. Guess what? Jesus is the Word of God. Ergo, Jesus is the Word of God, which is the sword, that, which is flaming, which keeps the way to the tree of life. Ergo, Jesus is the gardener that keeps the way to the tree of life. Jesus is the gardener. And she supposes him to be the gardener. She asks where Jesus is at. And you know what he does? Go to the next verse. Go to the next verse. He saith unto her, Mary. That's all he says. Mary. You have these moments in life that are monumental moments. If you've ever heard audibly or in your spirit, God speak your name, it changes everything. It changes everything. Listen, I've, I've had one of those weeks. Yesterday I was in a funk. Yesterday I was just in a funk all day long. And you know, there's different causes for it. It's not like depression or anything. I was just in a funk yesterday. And so being in this issue, this funk, I 
had kind of neglected my kids a little bit. Like, I didn't do anything bad, but I just didn't get to spend a whole lot of intentional time with them. So yesterday, I decided last night, I'll read you a book so that I could, you know, spend some time with you, some quality time. And, you know, they ate it up. They chose the tortoise and the hare. I read them the tortoise and the hare, which is kind of funny because I talked about Peter and John racing tortoise and the hare. Anyway, <laughs> one person runs and keeps stopping and ends up losing the race. The other one runs not quite as quickly but never stops and wins the race. Like, <laughs> Which one was the tortoise and which one was the hare in this situation? Anyway, the reason that I'm bringing this up is because in that funk yesterday, I began to enter into like some self-condemnation. You guys ever have that where you have a bad day and you have some bad thoughts or you get down on yourself or maybe on some decisions that you've made and you're like, man, I'm really just kind of wretched. Or I'm like, I'm kind of worthless. Like I'm not as good as I thought that I was. Everybody, am I just the only one? Look, if I am, that's fine. I still deal with it. Whether you deal with it or not or you want to be honest or not, I deal with it. And I'll beat myself up. Hey, yes, amen in the back. <laughs> amen or oh me. Like we're saying oh me right now. Like I deal with that stuff. But yesterday, as I was walking through this, I, I've been memorizing a lot of scripture. I, I love to memorize scripture. But every once in a while, a verse will get stuck in my head. And it's like just like a CD player like glitching. It's like saying the same thing over and over again. And yesterday it was the first part of Ephesians chapter 1. You know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself that we should be to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he has made us accepted in the Beloved. And that phrase was stuck on replay. He has made us accepted in the beloved. And it was wearing me out. It was just wearing me out yesterday. And so finally I was like, okay, Lord, if you want me to change what I'm preaching, I will. But I really like the cool stuff that you've already given me, but I'll look at it. And so I look at it, and I found something interesting. The King James is the only version translation that translates it that way. Every other translation will say something like according to the outpouring of his favor or the overflow of blessings or something like that. So I began to do a study like why did, what does this phrase actually mean in the Greek? And that's what it means. It means an overflow of favor or blessings. And I was like, okay, well, dang it, King James. <laughs> why are you Dang it, people. Why you translate this this way? But then the Lord said, keep going. And so I looked. And I looked at where else that particular Greek phrase is used in the Bible. And it's only used in one other place in all of Scripture. And it's in the beginning of Luke when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. And he speaks to her and he says, Oh, favored one. And what the Lord began to speak to me is, it is a showing of favor. It is a showing of grace. But it's such a showing of favor that it literally changes the identity of the person receiving it. It changes everything about them. That's what it means. A lavishing of love and favor and blessing that is so powerful and so prevalent that it changes the person receiving it. Anybody ever read the stories about people winning the lottery? They win all that money and they ruin their life. Because they received a gift... And the gift was so big that it changed their life, and often cases in the bad, for the bad. But this is a gift that is so big and so beautiful and so good that it changes the identity of the person receiving for the good. And when Mary heard Jesus say, Mary, all that spiritual darkness went away. And she knew by the mention of her name from the Lord 
that everything had changed. And it says she turned. She had already turned and seen her the gardener. I don't know if she did like a 360 spin. Because in Jewish culture, to rejoice means to spin in circles. So you like do a 360 spin. I don't know if that's what she did or not. But what I do know is it changed everything. To repent means to turn or to change your mindset. Her whole world was flipped upside down and she just said Rabboni, which means master. And in that instant, she heard her name. She gave all. She heard her name and she gave all. And listen, if we want resurrection resurrection life and resurrection power, we need to give all. We need to give all. Because God has already done it. He's already gave all. He's already done the finished work. You already got the folded cloth put up in its place. His his work is finished. You've already got the picture of the angels and the mercy seat. His work is finished. You've already got all the proof that you need. So now I go back to that statement I always share about generosity. How can we withhold anything when God has given everything? Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the finished work. Thank you for resurrection life and resurrection power. And Lord, I don't care if it's this church that starts it. I don't care if it starts with us or starts with me or starts with so-and-so down the road or starts with North Cleveland or South Cleveland or West Cleveland. I don't care, God. All I care is that it starts. I just want to see resurrection power and the Spirit move on Cleveland, Tennessee. And I want to see your glory manifested in the land of the living. Lord, if any of us are standing outside of that resurrection power looking in, Lord, help us to take that step and to move on in into your presence, into your glory, into your power, into your promise, into your favor, unmerited, unexplained, unimaginable. Lord, let us see it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. God bless.